Here we go. Quiet. Problem. Strong for scrawny kid. Sure, there's not a little beast in there. Come on, beastie. Oh, well, well. What a glittering assemblage. Delta Psi has the upper hand. People die at the fair. People die at the fair. I'm not a soldier. Of course you're not. You're a weapon. And my partner, he want to see that brother. When he talking? My name is Jeff. That's heaven, man. If we don't turn up with dragons, I'm fucked. Careful what you wish for. I think we just found a transformer. I need... Speak to Caesar! We need a plan. We need firepower. One day, everybody gonna know your name. Star-Lord. Who? Star-Lord, man. Legendary outlaw. Whoa, 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 whoa. Chills. Just a mask. See? Don't freak out. That there is a name to kill for. Lots to digest. Welcome to Aspect Radio. I am Ben Flanagan. I am joined via telephone by co-host Corey Kraft. It's been a while, Corey, since we've been on the air. We got a little cocky after episode 100, took some time off, couldn't get the schedule right, but here we are, and we're going to talk about this summer, summer 2014, offer our summer preview. And Corey, we are one movie into it. Amazing Spider-Man 2 kicked off the 2014 summer season last year, and you are harshly on the record in opposition of Mark Webb's and Sony's brand new Spider-Man franchise, which started a couple of years ago with Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker and Spider-Man, Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy. They're back again for part two. And, you know, you've been, again, on the record recently on Facebook talking about how much you hate that first movie and how much you were not looking forward to seeing the second movie, or really how much you were looking forward to bashing the second movie even before you had seen it. So, well, you know, well, I, no, well, nothing, Corey. We we know this is true. You weren't looking forward to it. That's a bit of a reach. You weren't looking forward to it. You were hoping it to be as bad as you think it is now. So before we launch ourselves into the rest of the summer and what we're looking forward to, go ahead and get it off of your chest how you felt about Amazing Spider-Man Two, and then talk about what you thought of it when you actually saw it. Have you had a chance to see it? I have seen it. Did you enjoy it? You have the floor. You have the floor. You go ahead first. I want. I want to hear. Well, it. I, I, yeah, I, I loathe it. I think it's. I think it's terrible. I think it's significantly worse than that first movie, whose primary sin of being boring is incredibly forgivable in the uh, in the light of this horrible atrocity of Spider-Man film and a brand property that that Sony has. Just about run into the ground with this just dreadful sequel that they've unleashed upon the world. And the box office um, it appears to be bearing that out, down significantly from the amazing Spider-Man's own performance a couple years ago. Not that I am overjoyed or anything, as you, I think, would characterize it to just like a Spider-Man movie. I'm a big fan of those Sam Raimi movies, but the first movie... The best thing you could say about it is that it was inoffensive and, you know, didn't totally stain the legacy of that pretty good trilogy that Raimi made. This second movie is uh, is a catastrophe. I think it's the worst 
uh, opening blockbusters since X-Men Origins Wolverine, which is an infamously derided superhero movie. I think this is almost as bad. Corey, I think your take on this movie is a catastrophe. Okay, so you liked it. I really liked it. I think it's just so much fun, and that's all I could really ask for from it. And I think you were right on the money when it came to the Sam Raimi trilogy, calling it pretty good. It didn't have that much to improve upon at the onset. Because I've gone back and watched the first Sam Raimi movie. And look, I know people consider part two probably the strongest of that trilogy. But I watched the first one. I wanted to get a feel for it again. It is a really nice little superhero movie there from Sam Raimi. But it ain't that great. And I think that big Spider-Man fans, guys who grew up wearing... Spider-Man pajamas, such as yourself. I don't know if you still do. Maybe you do. Maybe I do. I didn't grow up loving Spider-Man, perhaps the same way that you did. I'm a big fan of Marvel. I collected the cards. I've always been a comic book fan. Spider-Man was probably a little lower on the totem pole for me, but I still enjoyed him, and I always wanted to see him up on the big screen. And regardless of source material here, if I'm just judging this by a theatrical experience and the movie that was presented to me on screen last week, I had a great time. Yes, it is all over the place narratively. There are probably one or two or three too many cooks there in the kitchen when it comes to when it comes to plot lines, villains, characters in general, but that does not discount the amount of fun that there is to be had with this movie with the characters that are likable, with the action sequences which are brilliantly staged and executed in lit, I must say. I have to say, Corey, I don't see where the vitriol is coming from. I know that you dislike the movies, but in the fashion that you're disliking them and as harsh as you're being on them, it only suggests to me that you weren't a fan from the concept to begin with, the fact that they were starting anew following Sam Raimi's work, and Sony made the decision, obviously the financial decision, to start over and and give the people a brand new franchise and take it in a new direction entirely, seemingly for no reason other than for monetary value. You didn't like Mark Webb when they hired him on because you didn't like 500 Days of Summer, and you were already a huge Spider-Man fan to begin with, so marrying your precious Spider-Man with a director whose work you were not a fan of, famously on this show, it never stood a chance with you, did it? Well, no. I don't think that's entirely true. I'll admit that it does come across as suspicious. But in regards to The Amazing Spider-Man 2, I do not have a handle, even still, on what precisely this movie is trying to do as a narrative. It feels like something like three and a half different movies crammed into one, which is not a too many cooks in the kitchen situation. It's a I don't fundamentally actually know what I want my movie to be situation, other than I want him to fight big blue electric Jamie Fox. There needs to be some dubstep. We got to have some music that the kids are going to like. And then, oh, yeah, we need to force about six or seven different famous storylines from the comics in to make sure that we can set up all of our spin-off sequels and tertiary development. Which uh, is nothing films. which is nothing new to the superhero movie genre, by the way. Unfortunately not, but this feels like a particularly egregious case of this going wrong. Uh-huh. Marvel Studios has found a way to do this. I mean, I won't lie and say that they don't do it fairly egregiously, but they at least find a way to do it so that 
mostly it feels generally organic to the story that is being presented. This film seems to exist for no other reason than to set up future stuff and say, well, you may be unsatisfied with this, but the next one's going to be cool. On a plot level, just on a basic level, there are so many things that feel rushed, unexplained, unsatisfying, that even as a Spider-Man fan, or even if I wasn't, it would just still come across to me as overly concerned with the machinations of its plot at the expense of theme, at the expense of structure, at the expense of character. Going into The Amazing Spider-Man 2, you would be totally forgiven if you hadn't seen the first one for thinking Dane DeHaan and Chris Cooper, who play, show up as the Osbournes, were in that first movie, so shoehorned into this, are they? I mean, there are just so many messy things about it. And the frustrating thing is, the particularly frustrating thing about this movie is that I find that on a moment-by-moment basis, and it does a lot more right than Webb's first film. You've got wisecracking in Garfield. You actually have some cool-looking, as you said, action sequences. Lots of cool-looking action sequences. The thing about it is like, the first scene in that movie with Paul Giamatti is almost ripped out of a Spider-Man comic. That's the movie I want to see. Then it sinks into this completely plot-driven nonsense that never coalesces into anything interesting, seems telegraphed from the very beginning, I mean, is telegraphed from the very beginning, exactly where it's going in every aspect, and just doesn't come across as anything but brand development, fundamentally. I I just could not have enjoyed it less as a Spider-Man fan and as a fan of of superhero cinema. Look, here is where I'll I'll agree with you when it comes to the the multiple plot lines and characters that don't necessarily help the narrative or help develop those characters. And I know that that, that's been a source of frustration for fans is that they're not interested in developing these characters into human beings on the screen and that they are just sort of these ancillary things they stuff in there just because and to set up future installments. But I kind of wish that this movie belonged to Electro more so than it does because I think they have a relatively strong character even if it does ape Joel Schumacher's Batman movies at times oh, in in does. in tone and in in narrative when it comes to like the Edward Nigma character from Batman Forever yeah, absolutely. but I think that if you gave the entire movie to Electro and then you know maybe at the end of the movie you do set it up for other villains especially the the Harry Osborn character which I think works on a few levels in this movie although so much of it like you said feels shoehorned in then I think you have a stronger movie because I think you have such a strong villain, such a visually stimulating villain. And I think Jamie Foxx plays him okay. I don't know that he was necessarily correctly cast. I'm not sure who you would have cast in it, to be honest, but it doesn't really matter because they get everything right from a visual standpoint. I like his arc enough. I think that if you use the theme of fame and why it's dangerous and why it's probably dangerous to seek out in the extreme way that he does, and similarly, Spider-Man, who obviously enjoys being Spider-Man a little too much in this movie, something that I do think they touch upon relatively successfully from beginning to end, then I think you've got something really strong, and you have a villain that touches upon that theme, and you have these parallel narratives that work. But they abandon the character to introduce Harry Osborn, and then obviously you mentioned Paul Giamatti, who, who does not play a significant role in this. He, he's, he literally bookends this thing 
for the right. reasons that you mentioned. But I think that if you had given the whole thing to him and focused on this one character and this one adversary, then you've got something a little bit stronger narratively. And then you also set yourself up for other movies with the Harry Osborne character for an entirely different movie. Then you might have a stronger movie if you don't stuff as much into that one, too. But other than that, you're right in that this movie isn't perfect, and I know you feel stronger than that about it. It's not. There's way too much going on, and, and this movie is not airtight at all. But as just a summer spectacle and blockbuster, something for me to just go in and enjoy for a couple of hours. What I'm looking for here, with this franchise anyway, is just you know amazing action and, and these set pieces that Mark Webb, again, stages and executes better than guys we think are the best at delivering action. And and I think specifically action set pieces that are set at night. And we've had problems with Michael Bay and other action directors who just kill you with chaos. And they think that chaos equals success when it comes to these action movies and these set pieces that just sort of knock your block off. I don't think that's the case here. I think everything is completely accessible and brilliantly choreographed, especially the stuff with Electro. The Times Square sequence, I think, is outstanding. And I think even the climax, which might be tacked on and stuffed in there, I think it's really well done. I could probably say that for all of the action sequences in this movie, even in the closing moments. Like you said, it, it resembles that comedy you know, something pulled right out of a comic book. It's beautiful on screen. Everything is just beautiful here. And I think that the story succeeds enough for me. And I think that there are character things that totally work, and I think Garfield works. My rebuttal would be as, as visually satisfying as it is at points. I just don't care about a bit of it. I just think it's, it's plastic. I think it's phony. I think it's, I mean, you know, you shoehorn... Again, building to my frustration about the things it does right, you have these fantastic individual moments like the scene between Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker and Sally Field's Aunt May about halfway through the movie, where it pays lip service. Again, it flirts with being a better movie that is actually concerned with the characters it has set up. And then, you know, it just sort of turns its back on that. I certainly can't fault it for providing visual spectacle. But what I can say is, honestly, you know, as cool as it is, that's just not doing it for me anymore, being cool. Because you have movies like, for example, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, already out this year, that have been cool and have actually had compelling character work and have actually told a story that I'm interested in, not just well enough, but well all around. So for that to just be, I guess, the only thing this movie has going for it is kind of damning it with faint praise. Unfortunately, I think the story is kind of a mess, too. So while I'll grant that Mark Webb has stepped up his game from the first movie in regards to the visuals, I just can't really say anything good about it other than that. You know, that's it. I think that there are so many great human moments in this movie and scenes that depend on the characters, depend on the dialogue. For instance, the Sally Field scene that you just mentioned, really strong scene. The ground rules scene between Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone is one of the strongest scenes in the entire movie, in the franchise, and on display is this chemistry that everybody keeps yapping about, which you know you might have considered a little overrated going into it, but when it comes to that scene, you're just like, wow, as advertised, these two are great together, and you believe in this couple, and you want it to work, and I think that's what this movie really gets right, and when the relationship is vulnerable 
and you know things happen, I think as an audience, you're sad and you're emotionally affected by it. And that's something that I think these guys totally get work, Webb in particular. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you were at least. I was, I was left cold by it. I, I truly was. I was not into it. If you want to make that kind of movie, and Webb seems to be interested in making that kind of movie that actually sort of fits the, his indie romantic stylings into you know recognizable human love story. You don't do that in the same movie that you have Jamie Foxx as a Joel Schumacher outtake. The, the problem with this movie is that it can't pick a tone. It's too busy vacillating between being like six or seven different types of movies. And these elements, disparate as they are by themselves, are not terrible. They're just terrible when put together. That's where I think I disagree. I agree that there are a lot of elements and perhaps too many, but I think they all work well enough on their own, and even if they don't sort of coalesce into something whole, the fact that they work so well on their own, it does it for me just enough. And the movie does get by just enough. And maybe my expectations are a little different from you, considering I don't hold it as near and dear to my heart. But for what it is, it works for me. And and it might, for me, this might be the best Spider-Man movie. And I know that, you know, for Spider-Man fans and perhaps Marvel and comic book fans, that might be considered blasphemous to even think that, considering the second Raimi movie exists, or even the first for some people. But it's just true. I just had more fun with this than those movies. Those movies feel a little stiff to me. I'm not sure that Tobey Maguire totally works overall. And the third one obviously leaves a bad taste in your mouth. But I don't know, man. These are working for me so far. As somebody who's not a huge fan, maybe that's why. Yeah, I just find Raimi's films to so capably marry action and character and theme and all of these ideas that make Spider-Man Spider-Man. You know, I don't see a lot of that in these web movies. I, I just don't. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know where my expectations are with this. They haven't been very high for this franchise, as you've already established. But this even just it didn't even live up to what low expectations I had for it going in. It, it's, I just I thought it was a huge mess. And just the scripting level, it just felt cobbled together. And not a great way for me to start off superhero blockbuster season. Like I said, you know, I, I've, I've sort of put so much faith in the Marvel Cinematic Universe so far because it feels like they're just doing this sort of thing so much better than their competition at the moment. There's just really no competition at all when you look at what Fox has been doing with their properties and then what Warner Brothers has been doing with their DC properties outside of Christopher Nolan's Bat trilogy. There's just no competition right now. It's, it's Marvel Cinematic Universe or nothing for me, though I guess there's a movie that we still have to look forward to Marvel, but not Marvel Cinematic Universe coming out later this summer. Well, I'm sorry for your loss, Corey. <laughs> I'll get by. I think you will, and maybe the rest of the summer can help you get over it. So let's go ahead and launch ourselves into this summer movie preview, and we'll start with May. Today, as we're recording this, this movie, Neighbors, from Nicholas Stoller, who obviously directed Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Five-Year Engagement, 
and get him to the Greek. This movie stars Seth Rogen, Zac Efron, and Rose Byrne. It's a comedy about you know a, a suburban family who is living in a home as this fraternity moves into the house next door, and obviously they have a war of neighbors and you know the hijinks ensue and whatnot. I think this looks really strong. It looks like a really strong R-rated comedy, new vehicle for Seth Rogen. I personally worry about Zac Efron and whether or not he can sort of rise to the occasion. Like I know you feel Channing Tatum does in a movie like. 21 Jump Street and maybe 22 Jump Street, which we'll talk about later. I have reservations or a little skepticism as to whether or not he can do that, but Rogan seems pretty confident. Are you looking forward to this one? Yeah, we're going to see it this afternoon, actually. I'm feeling pretty optimistic about it. I, I think the premise, like you said, is strong. And Efron, for you know what you may think of him as a performer, I feel like he's got a good comedic performance in him, at least for a character of this type, which is the sort of vacuous frat boy type that he seems to play to the hilt in some of these boards here. Okay, May 16th, next Friday, Corey, next week, Godzilla. Gareth Edwards, Godzilla. Most anticipated movie of the summer. I'm with you. It's number one for me. It's got to be because of the marketing campaign, the trailers that we got, (laughs) because... Godzilla, again, I mean, kind of like Spider-Man, it's not something that I grew up just adoring. And obviously, I, like everybody else, was burned by the Roland Emmerich movie in 1998. So I guess it was time for somebody to sort of step in and make a good Godzilla movie again. And Gareth Edwards, the guy who directed this movie, Monsters, that enough people saw, obviously, to give him this kind of budget and this kind of shot at this level. And the cast seems amazing led by Brian Cranston and Elizabeth Olsen and Ken Watanabe. I mean, the, the, the cast is outstanding, but they got to deliver on the monster, don't they? They, they look to but the, you know, the, the marketing is still kept it fairly mysterious as to exactly what this is going to be. In We've been burned, of course, by misleading marketing before. And I'm not wild about Gareth Edwards' monsters, but if you watch it, I mean, unquestionably, you can see the emergence of a talented filmmaker within that. And he's certainly a guy who appears to have taken this job with all due reverence. I mean, this is one of the biggest global franchises out there and something that has really meant a lot to a lot of people throughout their lives for ages now. So it's a big job, but everything we've seen so far seems to indicate that he has risen to the task and delivered something really special, something certainly in a more foreboding tone than I think we're expecting. You know, whereas Pacific Rim, the movie you and I both really liked last year, was a good old-fashioned monster beat-up movie. This appears to be, well, a truly horrific disaster movie, at least by judging the tenor of the marketing. And that seems to be an interesting creative approach to Godzilla, you know, a, a franchise that has been sort of synonymous with men in suit cheese for so long. So we'll, we'll see how he, how he goes, but I just, I'm not looking forward to anything as much as I'm looking forward to this right now. I, just, I think I, I've got my fingers crossed, but it looks pretty fantastic. Yep. One more week. Can't wait. So the week after that, X-Men Days of Future Past, May 23rd, director Brian Singer is back. 
following a few entries from Matthew Vaughn, and obviously we had James Mangold with the Wolverine movie. The guy who fans oh. seem to prefer with this franchise is sort of crossing over into the territory that First Class did, along with his own movies from the, the 2000s. As somebody who's not a huge X-Men fan either, especially of his movies, I, I think they're really good, but they, they just leave me a little cold. I wasn't crazy about them. This looks like a lot of fun, and I think sort of marrying the eras of... Fassbender and McAvoy with McKellen and, and Stewart. That's really intriguing. And, and obviously Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. Hugh Jackman here for a seventh time as Wolverine. Yeah. Just having Brian Singer back, despite whatever's happening with him sort of off the field, I think that fans are looking forward to it. Are you? I, I have my reservations about it. This is one of the most beloved sort of comic stories, the Days of Future Past comic storyline. The last time the X-Men films tried to tackle something like this was in the Dark Phoenix storyline, infamously mangled by X-Men 3, Brett Ratner, sort of much derided. This, you know, I just want to give myself up to this wholeheartedly, but the fact is I'm, I'm just kind of scared that this is going to be a mess. You've got so many characters, you've got so many storylines, all these new characters that they're introducing, some of which quite frankly, like Evan Peters' Quicksilver, just looked kind of stupid. And after his run of recent films, discounting his personal troubles at the moment after the films that he's made, you know, you kind of have to question if Brian Singer still got whatever it was that he once had. I mean, he's coming off of Jack the Giant Killer, and that's not really the sort of thing that can instill much confidence in anybody. But, you know, I'll keep my fingers crossed. You know, X-Men and X-Men 2, his previous films in the franchise, are pretty fun. But by this point, there are just as many bad movies in the X-Men franchise as there are good movies. I haven't been a fan of, well, I wasn't a fan of X-Men 3 or either of the Wolverine movies, to be perfectly honest. So we'll just have to see where this could go. It's kind of a mixed bag for me despite having pretty much every actor on the planet in it in some capacity. Yeah, well, you know, to be fair, Peter Jackson, for instance, was coming off of The Lovely Bones before he got back into Middle Earth and, and made these fantastic Hobbit movies that we love so much. So maybe Brian Singer can sort of regain a similar groove. As a side note, are you getting the, the impression that you and I might be the only people on the planet who like those Hobbit movies. You know, people within my circle, I, I think, you know, folks like you and my brother Graham, who, who's on the show a lot, and other guys who contribute to the show, all really like the Hobbit movies. People I know, out of all of them, none of them disliked them. They thought they were pretty awesome so far. I have yet to talk to somebody who just truly hated them or disliked them. Yeah, they've gotten a lot of internet vitriol, and while, you know, objectively speaking, I, I've got to say I kind of felt the desolation of Snog to be probably the worst constructed of any of these movies so far, it's probably still just one of those flawed movies that I love wholeheartedly and will watch a million times just because of the stuff it has in it. I could give myself up to Peter Jackson and his Hobbit movies more than, say, I don't know. The Spider-Man thing. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll problem. we'll we'll get to that later. We'll do, we'll get to that with the winter movie preview, Corey. So we don't have to digress <laughs> into your your extended hate. So May thirtieth, there are a couple of big releases. Kind of a big weekend with Maleficent, the Disney live action Sleeping Beauty companion piece, starring Angelina Jolie as the title character, and then you've also got Seth MacFarlane's 
comedy, Western comedy, A Million Ways to Die in the West, hard R-rated comedy following his live-action debut and smash hit Ted. So out of these two, Corey, which would you see first? Oh, I, well, I guess I'll see A Million Ways to Die in the West first and probably will see it actually not too soon, but kind of soon. There's a preview screening in Birmingham. That's not to say that I'm like particularly chomping at the bit for either of these movies, though I did kind of like Ted. I just, you know, Maleficent, it looks pretty cool visually speaking, but so did Alice in Wonderland. And frankly, this movement of bringing these classic fairy tales to live action has not proved to be tremendously inspiring so far with stuff like Snow White and the Huntsman and uh, Alice in Wonderland sort of being fairly lifeless and unenjoyable. So I can take or leave both of these, to be perfectly honest. I'm excited about A Million Ways to Die in the West. I did like Ted, and I'm generally a fan of Seth MacFarlane. And I like that he's sort of going for this sort of blazing saddles thing. And I see that in in one of the latest TV spots, I can't believe they gave this away, but there is a very specific reference to an anachronistic Western that we are all very familiar with and love. But that's an aspect I'm really looking forward to. And, and I've talked to a lot of friends who are actually sort of hating on this movie already. They're not looking forward to it. They think it looks stupid. But I'm one of those people who thinks you got to trust in McFarlane. The guy knows what he's doing. Ted came through and pretty much everything else that he's done has worked pretty well. And I, I look forward to his very R-rated, dirty brand of humor. And, and I look forward to this. The cast looks like a lot of fun. I think Giovanni Ribisi coming back and Neil Patrick Harris are going to contribute a lot. And again, I trust in McFarlane. What can I say? I'm sorry. Are you into him as like a leading man now? We'll see. That, yeah, that, that's that, kind of the question mark for me. That remains to be seen. I'm going to give him a shot. I mean, he's good in Ted. He's good as a leading man in his vocal work on Family Guy. So I have no problem with it. I've got no problem whatsoever with him casting himself as the lead here. If it doesn't work, then maybe he'll have to try something else. But like I said, so far, pretty much everything he's done has worked pretty well. And you've got to think that, you know, he knows what works best for these stories and these movies. And, you know, we'll just have to see. But if it stinks, it stinks. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to see it too, so we'll, uh, we'll see how it goes. June, I change my June. All right, moving on to June, Corey. On June 6th, a movie that nobody is talking about for whatever reason, this movie Edge of Tomorrow, sort of like a combo of Source Code and Groundhog Day here that stars Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. This is directed by Doug Lyman, who obviously made Swingers and The Born Identity. I actually think this movie looks like fun. I don't know what it is. You know, maybe it's because, you know, over the years I've always liked Tom Cruise and liked his vehicles and his action movies, even though I wasn't a big fan of Jack Reacher. I thought he rebounded a little bit with Oblivion, but this looks like it's got some pretty awesome action and special effects, and I've always liked Emily Blunt, and I've generally liked Doug Lyman, so I'll probably catch this. I'll catch it to you, but I was a bigger fan of Jack Reacher, I think, than you were. You know, Oblivion was just one of those things that was fine, I guess. But something about this, I don't trust Doug Lyman one bit, to be perfectly honest. I think he's been pretty spotty since the born identity, if not outright terrible, like with something like that Hayden Christensen jumper movie. And that was you know, his last high-concept science fiction thing. So, you know, I I certainly remain, as you do, uh, a pretty big fan of Tom Cruise as an action star. So if for no other reason, I'll I'll definitely check this out because, 
you know, he generally speaking has a pretty good track record with something like this. It, it just isn't really inspiring any amount of, I don't know, vehement anticipation on my part just yet. But we'll see, you know, what kind of notices it gets and, and we'll go from there. The next week, another big weekend. You've got 22 Jump Street. You were a huge fan of 21 Jump Street with Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. The follow-up's coming out. And then also another sequel, How to Train Your Dragon 2 from DreamWorks, which should be one of the bigger grocers of the summer. Out of these two, which one are you catching first? Hopefully one right after the other. I'm a big fan of How to Train Your Dragon. I like that DreamWorks animated film. It's, I think, the first and perhaps only one so far they've made that's comparable to the best of Pixar. So definitely going to check that out. But of course, 22 Jump Street is my priority. Not to say that comedy sequels have turned out like tremendously well, historically speaking, but if anybody can do it, Phil Lord and Chris Miller have sort of earned that goodwill between, well, everything they've done, honestly, you know, including this year's smash hit, deserving smash hit, the Lego movie. So bring on 22 Jumps, bring on both of these, to be honest. I'm, I'm into it. I'm into both of them. Yeah, I like what I saw from the 22 Jump Street trailer, and Phil Lord and Christopher Miller are guys that I totally trust now. Whatever they make, I will see. I'm such a huge fan of of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs and obviously the Lego yeah. movie. I mean, these guys are extremely talented, and they seem like the kind of guys who are going to take care of a property like this and won't phone in a sequel. So I'm looking forward to it. You loved it, the first one, much more than I did, but I do think it's really oh, yeah. funny. And How to Train Your Dragon is... The first one is good. The flying sequences obviously are fantastic. And I don't know that I'll see this in the theater, maybe, but DreamWorks Animation does enough good work, I guess, to lure me in occasionally. I think Kung Fu Panda was actually their best movie. I prefer that to How to Train Your Dragon, but I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I like that one a lot. I will say, speaking of Lord Miller sort of earning goodwill for whatever they do, there was like that half a day where they were rumored to be taking over the director's chair on Ghostbusters 3, and as much as I find that a terrible idea, I couldn't help but just think, oh, God, am I going to have to care about this now? Because if they were involved, and and fortunately they're not, if they had been, I probably would kind of come around on it, even though I still think it's a terrible idea. Yeah, well, we'll see with 22 Jump Street, but it's one of those things that if you're going to give the reins of a property like that or any that's beloved by fans and has their following then those guys are the ones you want with the reins, you know? And if you're going to give it to anybody, give it to somebody who cares as much as those guys do. And you know that they're not going to do a bad job. You know they're going to give it everything. So if it's 21 Jump Street, if it's Legos, if it's whatever, then if, if they're behind it, I'm in. It's just funny how the most vocal Busters fans seem to say, no, don't do this at all to a third movie, but I don't know. Well, it's going to happen. I guess so, but you know, I tend to think if Bill Murray or, or Aykroyd and, and R.I.P., Harold Ramis and Rick Moranis aren't involved, or Ivan Reitman in some capacity, then, then maybe it shouldn't happen, but you know, we'll see. I, I agree. <laughs> so June 20th, it might be the first weekend I just outright skip. At the theater this summer, you have Clint Eastwood, who for some reason is making this Jersey Boys movie, and then you have the follow-up to Steve Harvey's adaptation, Think Like a Man, with Think Like a Man 2 spelled T-O-O like Teen Wolf 2, Corey. 
Well, both of those don't look very good. However, I will say that allegedly A24 is expanding this film, The Rover, nationwide that weekend, the follow-up to Animal Kingdom from writer-director David Michaud. Uh, sort of post-apocalyptic Australian Western drama with Guy Pearce and Robert Pattinson. So if that is true, that would be the choice for me that weekend. I'm a big fan of Animal Kingdom. And, you know, you're making a post-apocalyptic Western as I said, in Australia, you have to put Guy Pearce in it, I guess. So that's the one to look out for, I think. Summer movie blowout, baby. Sounds like Popcorn City to me, but no, it does, it does look pretty good. Okay, rounding out June. Transformers Age of Extinction. Corey, they're 0 for 3. Michael Bay's 0 for 3. And look, Shia LaBeouf's not in this, but why should I trust Michael Bay? Why should I why should I be fooled again and go for a fourth time? Well, you know how the saying goes, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times, uh, four times, four times. I don't know. I mean, I kind of take the opposite tack on these movies as you, which is I didn't care about Transformers as a kid. And, I mean, these movies are bad. Don't get me wrong. But things sure do blow up real pretty. And I don't know if that's enough to get me in the theaters for this one, but I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I guess. And it marks the first of Kelsey Grammer's action movie renaissance this summer. So we have that to look forward to. He could also be making a cameo as Beast. Remember, he was an X-Man. The summer of Kelsey Grammer. Unbelievable. Yeah, maybe it is the summer of Kelsey Grammer. Look, it's a step in the right direction that Shia LaBeouf's not in this thing, but Shia LaBeouf is not the primary problem with those three movies. No. If you can believe it. If you can believe it, Shia LaBeouf is not the problem. So, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, it's going to take a lot of me to resist seeing this in the theater, but at the same time, it's going to take a lot to, to get me in the theater. So I'm a little torn on this after the first three, but maybe the fact that Shia LaBeouf is not in this one is what's going to gonna be the crux, I guess, to get me in. In July, far, far I fly. Okay, we move on to July. On July 2nd, there are a couple of movies. I can't say I'm, I'm that jazzed about. Corey, you've got this Disney found footage movie, Earth to Echo, and this Melissa McCarthy vehicle, which finally got a trailer, this movie Tammy, which co-stars Susan Sarandon. And neither look particularly good to me. I'm with you there. I've got sort of hopes for the McCarthy movie that it ends up being worthwhile comedy, but what we've seen with movies like Identity Thief and Post-Bridesmaid work is that when she's sort of doing a one-note thing, Melissa McCarthy just doesn't really have it. I like the heat, but I'm kind of more skeptical of her choices going forward. Now, she did, I think, work on the screenplay of this film with her husband and uh, the director of this film, Ben Falcone. So maybe there's more to it than the trailer's suggesting, but that trailer does not look tremendously promising. And i got to admit, I'm kind of I'm kind of in the fence about this one. So July 11th, Corey, two movies, my most anticipated of the summer, one of the year, you've got Richard Linklater's Boyhood, which yeah. is arguably one of the most ambitious film projects ever, and you've got Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, the follow-up to, obviously, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which was a fantastic surprise from a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Both of the ones you mentioned, and whether or not we'll get Boyhood on a screen you know, around us remains to be seen, but those two are enough to really make the summer as far as I'm concerned. I mean, have you seen the new Apes trailer, the one that debuted yesterday? I have not, no. Oh, mercy. It is a beauty. (laughs) 
Well, you know, I'm a little worried that Rupert Wyatt isn't on board this time, but Matt Reeves obviously has chops. I know you're a big fan oh. of Let Me In and, and Cloverfield. Let Me In and Cloverfield. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. you know, Rupert Wyatt, I thought it was a huge reason why the first movie worked so well. And But this cast is fantastic, and you've obviously got Andy Serkis back on board here as Caesar, and, and this franchise seems to have a vision, and for the most part, it seems to be working really well. Yeah, this, this trailer is. It'll it'll calm your it'll calm what ails you. Trust me. Well, I'm still pumped it, about it, regardless. It looks awesome. It really does. My full faith is behind this motion picture. Definitely one of my most anticipated of the summer. In fact, my second most anticipated after the previously mentioned Godzilla. So July 18th, Corey. I don't know if all of your faith rests in the hands of these filmmakers, but the Wachowskis, whose last film, along with Tom Tickfer. Cloud Atlas was a favorite of yours from a couple of years ago. Jupiter Ascending seems to sort of mesh this just high ambition original sci-fi that you got with the Matrix trilogy along again with sort of the bonkers nature of the Cloud Atlas adaptation. It stars Channing Tatum and Mila Kunis among others and it looks way out there, but it seems like it's an original piece of filmmaking and science fiction. So I think just based on that, I'm on board. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. You know, it's kind of hard to get a handle on exactly what this trailer is representing, what it's trying to sell. But whatever it is, I mean, it does look completely unique. It's kind of hard to turn down that possibility. The Wachowskis are once again going to try to show us something in cinema that we've never seen before. I feel like they've done that several times before, not only with the Matrix trilogy, but with their cult classic follow-up that I've long been a devotee of, uh, Speed Racer. And if we can get more of that Wachowski filmmaking magic in this one, I'm going to be very pleased. I mean, there's no question this looks odd. Everything they do looks odd, but whether it'll be odd in the right ways remains to be seen. I'm, I'm optimistic, but like I said, it's kind of hard to, to really figure out or get a handle on what this movie is going to be trying to do based on the marketing so far. Maybe they're holding something back for closer to July, but we'll uh, we'll see how it goes. I'm, I'm definitely on board. Regardless of what happens, we'll always have the Matrix. So that same weekend, Corey, Zach Braff's long-awaited by some follow-up to his debut Garden State, this movie Wish I Was Here, which was controversially funded by Kickstarter, a Kickstarter campaign, will open July 18th. Did you kick some bucks over to Zach Braff's way? Are you looking forward to this one? You know, I didn't, but I, I sort of posed this question online a couple weeks ago, which is Garden State is kind of by now a pop culture joke. It's It sort of symbolically represents the, the worst of hipster culture that we've come to ride. But, you know, for all its flaws, that's a movie that when I was much younger, you know, when I was in high school, it's a movie that meant a lot to me. It's a sincere movie. It wears its heart on its sleeve. And it's kind of, you know, looking back, I don't think it holds up at all. But, you know, also remembering the point in my life where I saw it, it's a movie that spoke to me. And it's kind of a hard movie to dislike in that way. This movie, Wish I Was Here, looks like more of the same. And the kickstarting of it was a bit controversial. But by all accounts, it's, it led Graf to make this movie his own way. And if that's what it took, that's what it took. You know, I'm not saying that, that it looks 
amazing, but it's a movie that I'm going to give a shot to only for old time's sake, if that makes sense. You know, again, it's not like Garden State holds up. It's not like it's something that still really speaks to me in the way that it once did, but it once did enough so that I'm willing to see what he's grown into as a filmmaker. Closing out July, Corey, we have a big weekend, at least in terms of quantity. We've got three releases, one of which I really hope is opening this day and one that comes to the state of Alabama. But for starters, we have Hercules, this Brett Ratner movie with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, which doesn't look as bad as you'd think. And I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, I think the fact that it's Ratner is just going to automatically turn most people off, maybe including you and me. Yeah. But I'm still in the Rock's corner. I think he's talented. I think he deserves a film career. I think he could be a legitimate action star and legitimate actor for that matter. So I'm pulling for him. I just don't know if this is the right one to sort of propel that career into motion. Corey, you've also got Sex Tape on July 25th with Cameron Diaz and Jason Siegel, directed by Jake Kazdan. Are you at all awaiting that? The trailer didn't really do anything for me. didn't do much for me either, so uh, no, I guess not. Okay, well, alternative programming here. We've got Woody Allen's newest, Magic in the Moonlight, a new period romantic comedy starring Colin Firth and Emma Stone, Marsha Gay Harden, and some others. He's following up on one of his best movies in recent memory, Blue Jasmine. Have you heard much about this movie, and are you jacked for it? You know, it appears to be, by all accounts, and of course not much is known about it yet, because he sort of famously keeps his film projects under wraps until they're ready. I'm expecting a light sort of diversion, a comedy here, which I'm sure will be just as frothy and enjoyable as his other light diversion comedies. It seems to be every so often Woody Allen's new movie is about to come out and they announce the details of his next movie, the one that will come out next year. And every so often it happens that I'm a lot more interested in the next next movie than the next movie. And I think that's the case this year because it was announced that Joaquin Phoenix and Emma Stone will be starring in his 2015 project. And I don't know what kind of movie that's going to be either, but the prospect of Joaquin Phoenix in a Woody Allen movie is immediately just a little more appealing to me than this sort of light comedy that your magic and moonlight will be. You know, he's often said that, and I forget exactly the interview that he said this in, but he tends to give uninspiring titles to those movies he's <laughs> least proud of. Yeah. And Magic in the Moonlight is not a title from him that inspires a tremendous amount of confidence. But it, it also happens that Woody Allen holds some of my favorite movies by him in less esteem than I do. Uh-huh. So who knows? I don't know. I think it's a good title. And I think that the prospect of Colin Firth and Emma Stone in a Woody Allen movie together in a, in a period piece, for that matter, his first since, I think, Curse of the Jade Scorpion, and before that, Sweet and Lowdown. So I think that the yeah. prospect of all of those things is extremely positive. So really looking forward to it. Hope it comes out this summer. I like um, Curse of the Jade Scorpion most in, more than most people seem Oh, to I think it's so. a lot of fun. A lot of fun. In August, So we move on to August, Corey, and on August 1st, we've got a loaded weekend with this James Brown biopic, Get On Up, starring Chadwick Boseman, who played Jackie Robinson in 42 last year. But you've also got Tate Taylor's follow-up to The Help, 
which I'm sure a lot of people will be anticipating, but I think what you and I are most looking forward to here is Guardians of the Galaxy, this Marvel movie that yeah. you know just sort of came out of nowhere in the midst of you know all of the Avengers and these other Phase 1 and 2 movies that people were so jacked about, and, and rightly so, but Guardians of the Galaxy is a property that less people are familiar with, but this initial trailer that came out really caught the attention of even some of the naysayers out there, and this looks really strong. Yeah, it does. I think, you know, they knew they had to come out swinging to sell a pretty outlandish concept to an audience that would largely not be familiar with it. It's not that Marvel has not largely built up enough goodwill to sell over basically whatever they got to a large number of people, but, you know, it doesn't hurt to put your best foot forward, and I think they certainly did that with that trailer. I think it's enough to make this sort of off-kilter sci-fi got cooking up here with this uh, immediately appealing. And, you know, they knew it was going to be a sell just because of how silly it is. But I think that silliness is going to be immediately pretty appealing, even in the context of the, generally speaking, more serious Marvel Cinematic Universe. It seems more and more like after the success of Winter Soldier and the moderate success of The Lord of the Dark World and the sort of way that the cinematic universe has caught on with a lot of the younger generation in a big way. I mean, it's seeming like they can do no wrong. And I got to tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I think this looks really strong. But I will say that Get On Up has caught my attention too. In, when 42 came out, I think that's a movie that I, mean, I really like. I, I thought it was a pretty strong requisitely cheesy Hollywood biopic. But, you know, the takeaway from that is Chadwick Boseman is going to be a movie star. And if the Don't Up trailer doesn't provide further evidence of that, then I don't know what does. I think he's going to be huge if he continues to pick his projects so well. I mean, the, the movie from the director of The Help, the follow-up to that, you got to imagine that's probably a pretty good career move. Yeah, maybe, but really risky, though, on the part of the studio and even Tate Taylor and especially Chadwick Boseman. I mean, the charisma of James Brown can be matched by probably nobody. So we'll see if Bozeman's up to the task. The trailer suggests he might be capable of it, but I don't know. It's going to be difficult. That's got to be a really tough casting job. But he was good in 42, and I look forward to all of the other biopics he makes from now on. With Guardians, <laughs> with Guardians of the Galaxy, you mentioned the silliness and, and the risk Marvel might be taking with that. But I think the fact that you've got a guy like Chris Pratt, somebody who is more than capable of handling roles of leading man. He's got potential of doing that, but somebody who has just natural comedic chops and somebody who is hilarious on something like Parks and Recreation and has been good in, in supporting roles in some of the movies that he's been in. This is a guy who deserves a shot like this. I hope the movie's good, first of all, but if it's good, I hope people latch on to him and his talent and, and what he's capable of. So, Well, it's already paid off considering what he's working on right now. He's already been cast as the lead in uh, Jurassic World, well, which has got to be encouraging. I'm in, I mean, I love that dude. I think he's hilarious on Parks and Rec, and I've liked him for a long time. So uh, looking forward to that, you know, for many reasons, and he's a big one. 
So let's scoot through August. The next week, August 8th, Lucy, this sort of mix between Salt and Limitless <laughs> starring Scarlett Johansson. This movie is directed by Luke Besson, which I know will brighten the day and widen the eyes of, of big fans out there who love Luke Besson's work, especially his action work. It looks okay. Scarlett Johansson surprisingly seems like somebody who is a believable action lead, probably thanks to her work in The Avengers and and some of the work in recent memory. I've yet to see Under the Skin, but I know that there are big fans of that. Oh, I'm one of them. She competes that weekend, unfortunately, with another Michael Bay cartoon adaptation train wreck in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know, the, the movie that has engendered more needless grown adult nerd fury so far this year than any other. Needless grown you know, adult, right. needless nerd grown adult fury could be you know the title of the next Amazing Spider-Man two essay. That's probably that yeah. Write. That's probably what I'm going to title my autobiography. But I mean, I used to care about the Ninja Turtles, and then I turned nine. And nothing I've seen about this property has indicated that I should start caring about them again. I'll tell you that I don't necessarily think that making an Ninja Turtles movie is a bad idea, but making one that appears visually to call back to Christopher Nolan's Batman movies is an awful idea. That trailer is a train wreck. Yeah. I can't believe it. It's pretty horrible. The designs of these things are as you know expected probably under the watch of Michael Bay. It looks horrible. You're exactly right. He cast Megan Fox, which is never necessarily a good thing. And, you know, I'm not the biggest fan, but I'm not the biggest hater of that TMNT animated movie that came out a few years ago. I thought that was, oh, yeah, okay. Thought that was okay. Yeah, but, I mean, if you're going to do a live-action movie, fine. It's been several years since the trilogy that came out in the 90s, which had two good movies. I just, you know, whatever. I mean, this was going to happen anyway. You just wish that you get some good people involved. And, you know, no offense to William Fickner and Will Arnett and some of the other people that are in it scoring a paycheck here, but this looks like trash, and I expect it to be nothing less. So you're going to go see it then? Yes, I can't wait. Yeah, yeah you know, you got to be a completist. So... Yeah, absolutely. August 15th, a couple of movies. The Expendables 3, sort of in the vein of Transformers. You burn me one or two times. Why should I go see it a third time? The Expendables 2 was a, a decided improvement over the first movie, but it still wasn't that great. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I feel like Sylvester Stallone's ego has just completely gotten in the way of this franchise. Even though it is his idea, he can do whatever he wants with it, but it's just a shame you have this potential reuniting all these people. He deserves a ton of credit for that, for recruiting all of these old action stars and current action stars together to make, you know, hopefully one just amalgam of action movie badassness. But it has yet to really pay off, and he's bringing Arnold back, and he's got Mel Gibson, Harrison Ford, and Wesley Snipes on board for this one. So you hope that he can do something with all those guys, but I just, you know, I I, I have yet to be convinced that this can work if Sylvester Stallone is the primary creative voice behind it. Yeah, I, I agree. Those movies have been pretty dull, even though the second one, like you said, had its moments. I don't know what potential it could live up to, to be honest, but I mean, surely it could be more fun, and these movies just kind of have lacked in that all around so far. Yeah, well, we'll see. And then you've got The Giver, an adaptation of Lois Lowry's beloved novel. I don't know if you were a big fan of this book growing up, Corey, but Philip Noyce is directing this thing, and Jeff Bridges is in it, and to the chagrin, I think, of many fans. The female lead here is none other than Taylor Swift. I remember reading the book, and I thought it was fine. 
it's a book that my students enjoy. I don't know if they're anticipating the movie quite yet, but you kind of expect Hollywood to jump on this young adult fiction adaptation bandwagon with pretty much every property that they their hands on, and this one, you know, it seems as natural as any other to receive an adaptation. I remember the book being pretty good, though, but it was it's been a while, obviously. I read it when I was a kid. The last one I have here on the calendar is August 22nd, and it's Robert Rodriguez and Frank Miller's sequel to Sin City, this one called A Dame to Kill For. And Corey, I really enjoyed the experience of Sin City, especially when I revisited it and sort of dove into the special features of the DVD and really gained an appreciation for, more than anything, technologically what Robert Rodriguez was able to achieve. And from a story standpoint, I also enjoyed it. And I, I really enjoyed, more than anything, Mickey Rourke's performances. Marv and what I think was one of the best performances of 2005 and he's back here and there's a huge cast including Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Josh Brolin among others I'm down again you know if he can sort of recreate that similar movie making magic that he did with the first one then I think he'll be successful no I, I agree it's, and I like that first movie just fine when it came out I just kind of feel like the sequel is weirdly like six or seven years too late you know like, yeah why now like what <laughs> It doesn't appear to be some sort of major leap forward technologically. It just seems like the same thing Rodriguez has been doing since the Sin City. Just, again, it's weird to just come out of nowhere and say, we're going to do a sequel nine years later, and it's going to be a lot more of the same. I don't, I don't necessarily think a lot more of the same is bad. It's just, you know, oh, okay, do, do a sequel now, finally, I guess. I agree. That's true, and they probably could have made this movie five years ago, and probably should have, but... As long as it prevents Robert Rodriguez from just generally farting around, then I'm okay yeah. with it. And if it utilizes the guy's talent, then go for it. And I really liked I it the you. first time, and it looks as though he sort of recreated that. The fact that Robert Rodriguez had talent in the first place is, is something that could be lost on an entire generation of cinema fans because he's done very little of consequence or particular enjoyment since Sin City. Like, other than that, I don't remember the last movie of his that I enjoyed or found much worth in at all. You're not into the El Rey network? I think that does it, Corey, unless I just miss something. Well, I mean, obviously there's a lot of limited release stuff that'll pop in and out of the area over the summer. Probably unknown to us, but, uh, you know, stuff like Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer, stuff like Kelly Reichert's Night Moves, The Immigrant, the new James Gray movie, and we mentioned The Link later and, and the new Woody Allen, but also Anton Corbine's The Most Wanted Man. Even the, this movie, I Origins, from the guy who did Another Earth, a movie that I didn't like, but seems kind of interesting. And then the new movie from the guy who made Once, Begin Again, which seems to air perhaps a little too closely to standard romantic comedy tropes, uh, it's the guy who made once, so I will remain optimistic about that. Lots to look forward to, Corey. I can't say that this is a, a summer that I am just chomping at the bit to anticipate, but I think with stuff like Godzilla, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Boyhood, Gardens of the Galaxy, I think there's enough to get me really excited and to get me in the theater throughout the summer from beginning to end, so it's good enough, kind of like Amazing Spider-Man yeah. 2. <laughs> Well, I, I guess if that's where your your standards are, everything will be just 
fine for you going forward. You know, I think that my, my standard for summers, especially ones like this that I'm not too crazy about, the mantra I always go back to is, it could be 2001. <laughs> right. That was an awful summer. At least air conditioning is a thing. You know, you don't have to be outside. And no matter how terrible the Ninja Turtles movie ends up being, at least it's cool inside. Folks, check us out on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at Aspect Radio. Find us on Facebook at Aspect Radio. And hit up the podcast at AspectRadioShow.com. Thanks so much for listening. And Corey, get back to the lesson plan or whatever you have to do to close out the spring semester. One more week. All right, man. Talk to you soon. All righty. Later.